Welcome to the Brick Podcast, produced here at the Brick Store Museum in Kennebunk, Maine. Bricks construct our communities and link past, present, and future. Here in Maine, bricks can be found in our town halls, our sidewalks, our schools, our cultural institutions, our courts, our homes, and our fireplaces. As cultural metaphors, bricks can describe our strength, a brick house, our suffering, oh, hit like a ton of bricks, our frustration, hitting a brick wall, our determination, brick by brick, and our way home too. Just follow the yellow brick road. As bricks weave through our community and our culture, this podcast will do the same. Welcome, friends. My name is Cynthia Walker. I'm the director of the Brickstore Museum and your host today. We have a great lineup for you on our podcast discussing a myriad of histories in the Kennebunks. First, we'll be hearing from all of the museum staff in our greatest thanks to our museum volunteers, who to us truly make the world go around. August 29th, 2020 was supposed to be a big gathering celebration to thank them. Now we're bringing it to them in a virtual forum. And what you'll hear today are the messages from our staff recorded to send along to our volunteers. Of course, I'll mention that it's never too late to join as a volunteer. Just visit brickstormuseum.org or email us at info at brickstormuseum.org. Next up, I'm going to share a couple of books that we've recently come to own here at the museum that will be helping us craft uh, new programs and experiences for this fall and winter, if you'd like to follow along. Coming up next, you'll hear recordings read by Rick Wolf, who lives here in Kennebunkport, and you'll know his voice as the intro and outro gentleman on this Brick podcast. He'll be sharing excerpts from a journal by Edwin Walker of Kennebunk, who in 1874 and 1875 lost both of his daughters to tuberculosis. Next, we're going into the archives for a trip down memory lane with Steve Adams, a local man, who sat down to record an oral history with me about two years ago when the museum's 1968 exhibit was showing. The reason we're spotlighting Steve's recording is because it gives us the opportunity to highlight our next Century Saturday program, which is 20th Century Saturday, happening on September 26th, 2020. If you or someone you know has stories related to the 20th century, and of course we all do, or most of us do that weren't born in the 21st century, please email info at brickstormuseum.org if you want to share those stories with us. Speaking of the 20th century, we're going to be hosting a 20th century dinner on Wednesday, September 23rd, alongside our digital annual members meeting. Chef Bill Irish once again returns to create an early 20th century meal for takeout. The menu will highlight popular items in the 1920s, and we'll take a look at what people were eating about 100 years ago with a Caesar salad, which was invented in Mexico in the 1920s, or at least the dressing was, a chicken a la king, a popular dish of the time, and pineapple upside-down cake for dessert. What's interesting is that this dessert was so popular in the 1920s that when the Dole Company sponsored a recipe contest in 1925, 2,500 recipes out of the 60,000 that were submitted were solely for pineapple upside-down cake. Its popularity had skyrocketed due to the onset of refrigeration so that many more folks across the country had access to pineapple. 
And of course, canned fruit from companies like Dole allowed pineapples from Hawaii to be shipped almost anywhere. Tickets for the 20th Century Dinner are on sale on our website, brickstormuseum.org, right now. Lastly, I'll make a pitch for our memory sharing survey that we're running this September. September 11th, 2001 occurred 19 years ago this year. Like many other events in modern history, we are all able to remember exactly what we were doing and where we were. We ask that you take a trip over to our community diary page on brickstormuseum.org, which is in our digital learning center, and tell us about your individual experience on that day. All of these memories will be then compiled as a memory exhibition on our website where we can all share in our remembrance. These are our thank you messages via video that were sent along to our army of volunteers, more than 80 people in total, who support the museum year-round. What follows are the audio portions of those messages from our staff in order of voice appearance. Alex Fletcher, Leanne Hayden, Janine McCoy, and myself, Cynthia Walker. Hello, everyone. I hope you are all safe and well in these uncertain times. I just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you for everything you do to make the Brickstore Museum such a special place to learn about art and history. I want to extend a special thanks to all of the volunteers who helped with the annual fund mailing this spring. Despite the crisis, we managed to have one of our most successful spring fundraising cycles in recent history, ensuring that we are in a strong position to weather this crisis. So thank you, all of you, for everything you do for the museum. I wish you all the best of health, and I hope you have a great fall. Hello, everyone. I have my dog Riley with me today. I hope everyone is healthy and happy and enjoying the summer despite the ongoing circumstances. I want to take a moment today to express my thanks and gratitude to all our volunteers at the museum. Thanks to your dedication and generosity of time, uh, the museum is able to accomplish countless tasks, goals, and programs that we would not be able to do otherwise. I just want to say thank you and I appreciate all your help and I hope to see you at the museum really soon. Greetings to all my fellow Brickstore Museum devotees. This is Janine, your infrequent volunteer newsletter editor, and I just wanted to add my voice of thanks to those of the other members of the museum staff for our volunteer army and all that you do for the Brickstore Museum. We all agree that it's a really wonderful institution and the energy and time you devote really shows your enthusiasm. During the time that there have been fewer volunteers in the museum, and particularly earlier this spring when there was no one in the building, it really sort of brought home for me the essential nature of the community of the organization and how much volunteers add to it. Your um, contributions and probably even more importantly, the community that you help create is really essential to what makes the brick store the museum that we love. 
I look forward to us all being together again here in the building again sometime soon. And in the meantime, it really means the world to know that you're out there. As you can hear, the fire department is still active and, and keeping us all safe. And there they go now. Um, I bet you missed that too. We really miss you here. We look forward to all being together again sometime soon. And like I said, it means the world to know that you're out there. Thank you. We're marking Volunteer Appreciation Day a little bit differently than we imagined originally. Of course, it was supposed to be in person, number one big difference, with food and visiting with each other after a long summer of events and fairs and programs and tours and beach tours and everything else in between. And usually um, in any other year, all of us are looking forward to a little um, September nap before our holiday programs begin. That's not to be this year, but it doesn't make our thanks any less meaningful to you. We count you as friends, as co-workers, and bringers of hope, certainly in these days that don't seem to offer much. I hope you find as much joy being part of the museum family um, as we have when we see you walk through the door. I'm not being dramatic about that, and you can probably see me tearing up, and that's just because I'm an emotional person who can't hold it together. Um, <laughs> but quite literally, myself, as well as others, um, breathe a sigh of relief when we see you as volunteers come in, because I know that means someone's here to help, and that means everything to a small museum like this one. If I can speak to each volunteer individually, so to you, <laughs> Um, I want to thank you for all that you do to carry the museum forward. Even in times where it doesn't seem like your project is moving forward or visitors don't come in or a tour gets canceled or something like that, your donation of time and effort is truly amazing. After minding the front desk here today where I'm sitting, um, and telling you that I got nothing done aside from answering phones and selling books. <laughs> um, I would give just about anything to have everything back to normal and see your smiling faces back here at the museum pitching in as you always do. And that, that way we would all get a little more done. I want to thank you for spending the time uh, offering advice, dealing with technology that we frequently change. <laughs> Um, bringing laughter, welcoming visitors, and developing a future for the museum. We could never pay you back for all that you do, and I just hope that you know how meaningful your work is and how much you, each and every one of you, is a pillar of the museum here, helping the entire team of staff, volunteers, and trustees to hold, hold up and support this community museum. When I think of museum volunteers, I think of that famous quote by Helen Keller, and I'll close with that. Alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. We are small but mighty, and I wanna thank you for being so incredible. I'll see you soon back here at the museum. You've often seen me write about how creating exhibitions is much like 
researching any other research project or final paper or thesis or something like that. So along with that comes reading a lot of books. And in an effort to share with you what resources we use and be a little more clear in in what resources we use to write and research local topics as well as national topics, we thought it would be an interesting idea to start a history reading list of books that we consult here at the museum for those projects. So the first three books that I wanted to list, and we'll be putting this list on our website and we'll be adding to it under the education section. So once again, um, brickstoremuseum.org slash education. The first one is a book on emotional history. And those of you who've heard me speak before on the history of emotion and tying emotions to history, it's a personal interest of mine. But it's not so much studied in the United States. It's more studied in Europe and Australia and things like that, and how emotion influences history and how emotion is understood through history. So the first book that I just found, is it's called Fear, A Cultural History. It's written by Joanna Bork. Um, she's a, a professor of history in England. And basically, it's a pretty hefty book that discusses how we all understand fear and how it is one of the biggest emotions in our history and how fear pervades almost everything. The book uh, reviews about 200 years of our history and how fear has played a part in the choices that human beings make. And of course, what's interesting is that she focuses a lot on the 20th century. That century, sometimes it's called the long 20th century. We are working on a new program for uh, October, which speaks to where fears come from and kind of the cultural history of fear, of course, in time for Halloween. So we are asking folks on our Facebook page, but you are more than welcome to email us as well about what your fears are. You don't have to do any research. You just tell us the fear. One of our interns this fall is going to be doing some research on those fears, where those, and then we'll be presenting that in a virtual program this fall. Next book is something called Our Beloved Kin, A New History of King Philip's War, and that's by Lisa Brooks. This is a new book, just came out in 2019. And it is basically a a history of King Philip's War, and it speaks from the point of view of the indigenous peoples who were living here during the French and Indian Wars. It's a really interesting book. I've just started it, and it was in order to get a grasp on the difficulties of illustrating what happened here in New England at the museum without coming at it from simply the colonist perspective. And last one I'll mention for this month anyway. This is a really old one, but it's one of my favorites and one of one of the ones that got me interested in working in museums when I was younger. So this is for kids or kids at heart. This is called From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. You may recognize that from a reading list or two in your school days. But if you have kids or grandchildren that might be interested in working in the museum field or don't know if they are, this is a, a book that was written by E.L. Konigsberg in 1967. But it's about two children that get locked in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And they go on this amazing quest through the, <laughs> through the museum. So I'll, I'll also mention two other books that are not new at all by any means. But they're certainly uh, the two books that, if you're wondering where the museum gets a lot of its information from the pre-19th century, there were two historians in Kennebunk and and Wells that wrote histories of this area that go all the, well, that claim to go all the way back, which frankly they don't, but they do provide a lot of information as long as you keep in mind that these were written in the 19th century and a lot more digging has to go into filling in the holes 
that were left by those historians. However, if you want to have kind of a historic look back at who was living in town, what was happening, what was happening in town, locations, things like that, a quick kickoff to learning about Kennebunk history are these two books. So these two books are both in the collections of the Brickstore Museum. So if you want a printed copy, you just need to uh, set up an appointment to come in and, and read and sort through those books. But these are both very nicely on Google Books. Google has scanned both of these books, so you're able to read them online. The first uh, is called History of Kennebunk from its Earliest Settlement to 1890. This book was written by a man named Daniel Remick. That last name is spelled R-E-M-I-C-H. And Daniel Remick wrote, as the title said, about the earliest settlement here in the Kennebunks um, to the history up until about 1890. Second book goes a bit earlier. It's called The History of Wells and Kennebunk from the Earliest Settlement to the Year 1820. And that was written by Edward Emerson Bourne and printed in 1875. So once again, both of these books focus on early settlements. I can't say that they focus on anything but the colonist and settlement view of history, but they certainly illustrate items that we can dive into a little bit more once we have uh, some clues from those books of where to look and names to match to people and places. So I hope you enjoyed those. If you have a book that you like to uh, refer to and would like to put on that history list that I mentioned at the beginning on our website, feel free to email us at info at brickstormuseum.org. Up next, this is a recording done by Rick Wolf from a diary from Edwin Walker, who lived here in Kennebunk in the late 19th century, right when tuberculosis was starting to spread uh, throughout the country. And of course, um, Edwin, who came from a family of diary writers, you might recognize Andrew Walker, um, who was the town diarist in Kennebunk. We often reference him in a lot of our research. The Walker family seemed to be prolific in their writing, and Edwin was no different. So he wrote down every single thing that happened uh, to both his daughters when they were passing away of tuberculosis in 1874 and 1875. So this is a bit of a sad story but certainly one that's interesting in these times and certainly one that's just a very emotional and personal take on what was happening in history. October 17th, 1874. Saturday. It was a warm, pleasant day. Florence's funeral was attended by a large number of our relatives, neighbors and friends, and the Reverend Mr. Werther officiated and we followed her remains to the grave and looked upon her face for the last time on earth. She has dashed away from our midst very suddenly. She went to South Farmington the 20th of last January to work in a straw factory, and was well as usual. She wrote home often, saying she was well, until about three weeks before she finished work there, which was about the 20th of June. She wrote that she had taken a slight cold. Her lungs were sore. She was tired with the work, and should be glad when she could come home. She finished work there, went to Cambridge, and stayed the week and came home the 30th of May. We were surprised to see her look so poor and thin, and thought when she had got rested a little, she would be better and begin to gain in flesh, though she had a little hacking cough, night sweats, and a poor appetite after being home a fortnight, drinking thoroughwort tea and bringing doctored at home and getting just no better. 
I carried her to Sako to see Dr. Libby. He said she had a slight irritation of the lungs, but thought she would soon throw it off, and wanted to see her again in a week. But after seeing her a few times, and finding his medicine did not work as he wanted it to, he told me he was afraid it was tubercular consumption, and that he felt very anxious about her. She continued to ride to Sako every week to see the doctor till the 3rd of August, when she got so weak, so tired, that it took her too much to go so far, and the doctor did come to see her again. He had given up hope, or had small expectations of her getting well again, but did continue to come every week till she died. She still rode out most every day till the 15th of September, when she was so weak she could not get into her carriage. Florence was twenty years old, and died at half-past six in the evening. December 4th, 1875. Saturday. Margie rested very well the first part of last night, but after twelve o'clock she raised a great quantity of phlegm, so much at times it seemed that she would choke. She grew very weak and said she could not stand to raise so much, and wanted to have the doctor once more visit. The doctor has not been here since the 29th of October. But I sent Herbert Jacobs after him. The doctor arrived at four o'clock, left a little medicine. He said she was very low, her pulse very feeble, and did not think she would live but a short time. Flavilia and I stayed with her at night. She now has short naps, and at midnight, she was pressed for breath, very thirsty, mouth was parched, and finally she slept till three o'clock in the morning when she was again more pressed for breath and suffering a great deal of pain. Her breath grew very short. She has her senses all the time, spoke now and then of the pain she was in till six o'clock. Her breath came quicker and more labored till half-past six. She ceased breathing and was dead. December 5th, 1875. When Florence was sick last year, Margie appeared to be in perfect health, and friends who came to see Florence remarked how healthy Margie looked. But soon after Florence died in September, later in November and December, Margie has a slight hacking cough with a disinclination for exercise. She worked about the house and rode out till last December when her cough grew worse. We gave her teas and medicine for her cough, thinking and hoping it might be but a slight cold or sickness that would soon pass away. As the weather became warm, she rode out quite often and had not strength to walk but a short distance. The last of May I went for Dr. Libby and told him how she had been and what she had done, and I asked him to come see her. He came and visited her, and told me that her lungs were diseased, and he feared she could not get better, but would try his best, and at his second visit she appeared to be better, and we felt some encouraged as he continued to visit her. But after the second visit, she began to fail slowly, and by the last of June, she weighed but eighty-five pounds. She continued to ride through June, July, and after haying was over most every day for a while, some days going long rides with me to the port, to the beaches, to the Great Falls, to Sako. 
She was very feeble at this time, but seemed to enjoy riding, and the doctor said being out in the open air would do her as much good as medicine. She continued to ride out through September, but grew weaker all the time, was subject to dizziness and fainting spells when she was riding, and I had to stop and fan and bathe her head with water. She rode with me for the last time the third day of October. She was very weak and feeble, and after she came from the ride she told her mother she would never get well again, and if it was God's will that she was satisfied. She said it was all right. She went about the house till the 14th of October, when she kept her room most of the time. The 17th of November she walked with my assistants into the sitting-room and sat at the table and ate dinner with us. Though her appetite was very poor, she said the food tasted better to eat with us. I carried her out in my arms several times after, especially Thanksgiving Day, when she insisted on having our usual dinner and sitting with us, and she seemed to enjoy it. But her cough grew worse, the phlegm grew more and more troublesome, and her pains more and more severe, until God, in infinite mercy, took her home. Up next is an oral history, or a portion of one, with Steve Adams, who is a local Kennebunk man, who talks about his growing up in this area, as well as his service during the Vietnam War. Since this is only a portion of that audio, you can find the entire interview on our oral history digital collection, on our website, which you can access through the Digital Learning Center at www.brickstormuseum.org education. When I turned 16, uh, my, I, I went to my dad and said, I got a car. Yeah. And my dad said, well, good for you. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I really would like to have a car. And he said, well, I can't afford to buy you a car. Yeah. And if I could, if we had a car, I, I, I will be honest with you, I, I couldn't afford to pay for the extra money for the insurance or the gasoline uh, yeah. or anything. So I really don't see there being a, a car. Now, my mother had a decent car. My dad had a, oh, my, my dad, when I was in high school, this was in 1968, drove back and forth to Portland. And he would, he was a long haul trucker. He would leave Sunday night and oh. come home. Saturday, uh, uh, Friday night or Saturday wow. morning. Okay. And he, out of Portland, was where the terminal was, and he drove a 51 Dodge. Oh. I mean, it wasn't like a new truck <laughs> no, or anything. No, I guess not. Uh, but the interesting part about it was it wasn't considered an old truck. I mean, oh, everybody drove yeah. 50s. Yeah, sure. It seems like almost everybody I knew there had a fairly new car from the 60s, 60s <laughs> yeah. early to mid-60s, and then a truck from somewhere in the 50s. And if they didn't have a lot of money, well, maybe the truck was in the 40s, but yeah, yeah, yeah. very few people had trucks from the 60s. They were all from the oh, 50s, it seemed like. Yeah. And no one thought too much of it. Right. Just what everybody, what everybody <laughs> had. When I finally found a, a car that uh, I could afford... And I went to my, my folks, and of course I was working at the IGA, mm -hmm. and they said, well, as long as your grades retain a certain level, you can buy this car, and you can 
beautiful. So I bought a car. It was a 1957 Ford. Oh, okay, very nice. So it was, oh, it was very nice. It was $45. Okay. But that's because it had a new sticker, an uh, inspection uh. sticker. And without the sticker, it was less. I see. But yeah, I right. wanted to, no, I needed to have an inspection sticker. So it was $45. That was the summer of uh, 66. And then my sister, who was a year older, was a little upset. Yeah. That she, I had a car and she didn't. But of course, I worked. Okay, yeah. And so. Then my dad came home one day and said, well, I've got a car for you, oh. June, my sister. Yeah. Said, you're going to have to, next summer, uh, we'll, we'll get the car, and then next summer you're going to have to do such and such. And she said, well, no, I've got some savings. We can fix such and such and put it on the road. We went to Portland to get it, and it was a 1959 Edsel. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a friend of my father's, it had belonged to his son who'd gone to Vietnam. Oh, wow. And they said, well, the son said, when I come home from Vietnam, I'm not driving that Edsel. I'm going to get a brand new convertible or something, whatever it was. Sure. So my dad and I, and we had a tow chain, and we hauled the thing home to Kennebunk. And yeah. uh, so my sister had this. So these cars were, my Ford was 57, so it was 11 years old. Right. Right. And this car was nine years old they were considered worn out worthless cars (laughs) they truly were these were not top of the line really nice cars that seemed like in those years yeah by the time they were 10 years old you'd gotten the goodness out of them (laughs) and and usually then some (laughs) and going through the high school parking lot yeah uh when i've had my first car i mean one kid had a 39 Buick, another had a 41 Oldsmobile, oh um, another a couple of 49 Chevrolets, and yeah. 51 Fords. I mean, <laughs> again, nobody had any money or anything. <laughs> right. And these were then one. considered the bottom of the bottom. They were not considered classics <laughs> of antiques yeah. <laughs> 50-odd years ago, remember? Yeah. But then, uh, over the course of the winter... By my, I had an accident with my Ford, oh. and it slid in. I slid it into a tr- telephone pole and Oops. smashed it. So my dad said, "Okay, well, this isn't going to work. You need to have something a little bit better if you're going <laughs> to drive." And over my mother's objections, I ended up getting a car that had been in a wreck and then rebuilt by a okay. garage that my father knew. And it wasn't a perfect car, but it was actually a pretty nice car. It was a uh, 1962 oh. so it was fairly new it was a valiant all right it was a slant six and and it was black and it had a red interior with bucket seats and oh my gosh i mean it was really quite spiffy at the <laughs> yeah. time and so i got that and then my my friend brookie who was the captain of the football team got a 63 corvair convertible uh and then let's see what else did we see oh and then duke <laughs> emmons father gave him a brand spanking new 67 Chevelle SS 396. Wow. I that would just yeah. fly. <laughs> so between sophomore and junior years, our, most of us mm-hmm. who were driving, our cars kind of went up a notch. It improved a little, uh, yeah. A little bit. But that Valiant, I mean, I would take it. We would do foolish things like um, there used to be a particular pizza place on Kenmore Square in Boston. Oh, okay. And it'd be 10, 11 o'clock, and 
because by now my dad's on the road all week. Oh yeah, right. and um, <laughs> mom, I'm gonna stay over at Mike's house, and Mike would say, oh, "I'm staying over at Steve's house," oh, oh, okay. and we get in my little van and we go to Boston to get a slice of pizza. Okay. But gas was nothing. Nothing. Yeah. The car got great gas mileage. <laughs> it was fairly new and low miles and foolish things. And the driving was huge. Yeah. I mean, that was a lot of our entertainment. Okay. Because everybody went to the drive-in, either Friday or Saturday, at least in my group. Right. Uh, and half the time we'd watch the movie, and half the time we'd end up talking back and forth between cars. <laughs> honest, I wasn't. <laughs> I'm thinking of a story that you were telling the other day, but just because I found it amusing, something about the wrath. Well, uh, <laughs> in those <laughs> days, in the 60s, I think certainly long before that, Yeah. Um, Kenny Bunk, about where the dog park is now, was where the dump was. Yeah. And on Fridays, what they would do is they would push it all into piles, burn it. Right. Every Friday. Wow. Uh, Which kept the, of course, it kept the odor down, kept the rats down, (laughs) kept the uh, piles down. Down, yeah. So, again, it's kind of a rite of passage when you get to be a little bit older. Or maybe one of the older boys would take you with him. Uh, it seems like everybody I knew I grew up with had a twenty-two. Okay, yeah. Uh, and interestingly enough, we all, I think, started hunting with twenty-twos. And we were taught early on that it wasn't a toy, hmm. that, it was a, that it was a tool, yep. truly, yep. Uh, and how to use it and how to keep it clean and, and what to do with it. And shown the rudiments of, of how to fire it, but then pretty soon you get a little older. Now all of a sudden, you know, you got your fifty-seven Ford on <laughs> Friday yeah. night, and, <laughs> and you, your girlfriend's doing something with her girlfriends. Got a couple of boxes of shells, catch a twenty-two, and you get on there. And of course, you start. You're one of the younger guys. You start on the end of the line, all and right. got to work your way into the good spots. But, <laughs> oh sure, yeah. Uh, the uh, everybody would you'd wait there very patiently, and pretty soon somebody would pull their headlight on, and then everybody would pull their headlights on. And of course, all the the rats were there feeding. Yeah, you start plinking away, <laughs> and you get to be a pretty good shot because it was a source of embarrassment if you oh, missed all right. the time. <laughs> yeah. So you you and other guys would say, no, no, you tuck your cheek into it and <laughs> do this, do that. And, you know, 14, 15, 16, yeah. you're down there shooting rats. And then by the time you're 17, it's not so cool anymore. That's fair. But <laughs> when I actually got to Fort Dix, they marched us five miles out to this rifle range. I'll never forget oh. it. And as an aside, one of the kids in my uh, platoon, his name was, oh, goodness, his uncle was a senator from Georgia. Oh, and his uncle was Uncle, oh, what? Very famous at the time. Okay. Very famous senator from, <clears throat> I can't think of his name now, but he, he looked like a typical Southern senator. Anyway, his nephew, again, I know that I'm a, really put some weight on, but this kid was fat. <laughs> he couldn't make it. Oh, no. Okay. So we they had a special platoon for people who needed to lose weight once you get into the Army. All right. And they would have special diets and special exercises to help them yeah, lose okay. weight. That's true. Uh, well, Georgie, he didn't want to do that, so he called his uncle. The next we know, he 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 
sits around the barracks all morning, and then he rides out with a lunch truck. Gets off the truck, does his shooting, and then gets back on the lunch truck and goes back to the barrack. Oh. And that's how he spent his basic training. Oh, all right. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we get out there, and they, everybody, you're laying there in the dirt, and you know. Yeah. And everybody gets handed a rifle, and I, geez, it feels just like my 22. I mean, I know they talk, you hear on the news today about assault weapons and this and that and that. Yeah. Part of the problem with them is that they have been ergonomically designed. They're very comfortable to hold. They're very easy to hold. They're very easy to fire, mm-hmm. which is part of the problem, I, right. I think, with yeah. these kids. But anyway, yeah. so I'm laying there and they're doing, oh, this is great. Oh, <laughs> this is really nice. And so the sergeant comes over and says, hands me down a clip and... We've already been shown in the classroom how it goes in. So, okay. Okay, put the clip in. So I put the clip in and cock it so you bring the yeah. plunger back. And now you got a live round in the chamber. Right. But it's on safety. And, of course, there are some things, if you have been around guns at all or rifles, just become second nature and in, or instinct, like making sure the safety's on, making sure oh, it's yeah. pointed away from people, things like that. Yeah. And again, from the time I was a little kid, this is a tool, and this is how you treat it. This is not a toy and all that sort of thing. Anyway, so I'm doing all this, and the guy comes over, he says, uh, Adams, uh, because our name's on the back of our helmet, uh, he says, Adams, you look look like you know what you're doing. No answer from me. (laughs) Fire off around. So I fired off around and hit hit what I aimed for. Oh, you hit it. Go through that whole clip. So I did. And he said, where are you from? <laughs> Maine. Yeah. Oh, well, all you boys from Maine can shoot. You must grow up with rifles. Must have been hunting your dinner, right? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. You don't argue sure. with them. Yeah. <laughs> so that, I mean, and that happened. Um, so I was able to shoot expert and uh, credit all to dumps at Kenny, yeah. to the rats at Kenny Bunk Dump. <laughs> there you go. Um, then, of course, what happens comes the, the fateful day yeah. when there are some fellows, no matter what they do, they're not comfortable around rifles or weapons, mm-hmm. that, that, that they don't feel good, they don't know what to do with it. They have to shoot, shoot at a certain level to get out of basic training. And, of course, remember now, we're all going, we all think we're going, well, yeah. Vietnam is, again, there. it's big, yeah. it's there. <laughs> yeah. It's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Right. And we don't know who is or who isn't going. Now, I knew I wasn't going because of my circumstances. Oh. And I'll tell you why yeah. in a okay. few minutes. But uh, uh, I knew I wasn't going to Vietnam, but I didn't know whether the guy yeah. on either side of me are going or not. Right. So he says, uh, Adams, you shoot pretty good. So, Thank you, Sergeant. Uh, this is... Dale Maybe. Oh. That was his name. Okay. Some things you just don't forget. No, Dale true. Maybe. M A Y B E E. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I said, hi, Dale. How you doing? And I mean, I kind of knew him because you're in these with these same 300 guys and you're all living yeah. together in one building and right. on one floor. And I mean, you know, you kind of know everybody. Yeah. So he says, uh, maybe can't walk and chew gum at the same time. He's got a pass. Or he's going back to day one. <laughs> Nobody wants to go. I mean, no, this I'm is sure the worst yeah. eight weeks of my, 12 weeks of my life. I'm telling you. I mean, I had played football. I thought I was 
pretty tough stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. no, no, okay. No, no. <laughs> oh, no. This is the worst 12 weeks yeah. of my life. Okay. And this is probably now week, oh, seven, maybe eight, and to the point where you can almost see a glimmer in the distance, but not right. really. And maybe's looking at me, and, and the drill sergeant says, he's got to have, at this According to our regulations, he's got to be at this stage in his training. Yeah. And he can't, he's not. He can't shoot that good. So I said, well, what do you want? He said, I want you to hit. He's got to hit six out of 18. I want you to hit six. And I said, well, he said, if you don't, he's going back to day one. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So I put his helmet on. Oh, all right. And yeah. hit six. Huh. So he could stay with us. Wow. And continue training. Yeah. And then that was all right until he had to hit 12. Then he had to hit 12. Yeah. Uh, but then he needed to hit 14 to graduate. I was very hesitant. Yeah. Because all I could think of was, holy crap, what if he goes to Vietnam and he can't shoot? He shoot anything. Right. Maybe he should go back to day one. Right. Maybe he could learn. The next yeah. time through, so oh, I had done twelve for him. That seemed like oh, okay. I got, but wow, the time now he might they want fourteen and every time you know it's the same thing with any anything. Yeah. So I sat down with Dale and we talked it all over, and he said, "I got to tell you that uh, I'm going to be a truck driver. I've already been accepted at truck driving school." Oh. Uh, I'm not going to need this rifle. All I got to do is get out of here. Okay. And I'm telling you, I've got to be a truck driver. If I go to Vietnam, it doesn't matter. I'm not shooting a lot oh. of people with my rifle out of my truck windshield. <laughs> so I said, well, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, based on that, yeah. so I did. Hmm. I did it. Yeah. I carried that guilt finally in 1988. We went to Washington to see the wall. Yeah, right. First thing I did was look his name up. It wasn't there. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Thank there goodness. Go. Oh because God. if his name had been there, right, exactly. I would have felt like, He's oh, my God. Yeah. What did I do? Yeah, right. That's but his a... name wasn't there. So yeah. I thought, oh. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> That's, I mean, this is all true. Yeah. This is all, this is all really, and it wasn't. Uh, my story is typical. I yeah. mean, these are things that we all thought and right. worried about. Mm -hmm. Everybody has different memories, but yeah. So anyway, that was. So I was at Fort Dix. So how? Um, just to go back for your own timeline. So. You had gone to the accounting yes. school. Yes. And then did you get drafted or you did Well point? I uh <laughs> I actually uh flunked out. Yeah, okay. Party and had a hell I mean it was just <laughs> my own stupidity, truly. <laughs> so I uh again, so here I am. At that point I was eighteen years old, my college dropout with a one A Mm. And I'm thinking, you dummy, this is <laughs> oh, not going to no. work out well. Yeah. I own a car mm. that's a beat-up 
car. Mm-hmm. I'm living at home with my mother and father. I'm thinking, you know, where's my life going? Yeah. And, and But on the other hand, my life can't go anywhere until I get this cloud. Yeah, right. So I'm at work, and I think, well... <laughs> I was making a dollar sixty an hour okay. at the IGA in Wells, bagging groceries, wow. and uh, now a dollar sixty was the minimum wage. Oh, okay. At that point. All right. So I went to the boss and I said, uh, "I'd like to have a raise. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm out of, I've left school. You're in your funk Well, whatever. Yeah. I've left school. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'd like to start working full time if you could use me." Yes, he said, I can use your 40 hours a week. Uh, and I said, I'd really like to have some kind of a raise if I'm going to be doing that. Right. Well, he said, I'm paying you every dime you're worth now. Well, that's kind of a tough statement to hear. Right, I, think. I think it's one I needed to hear, <laughs> but it was a tough statement to hear. <laughs> so I said, okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Thinking to myself, there's got to be something else out there. Yeah. This was in April of '69, so um, nothing to do with a, with '68 by now. Yeah. Um, went back out, and the lady there was a lady, a very nice lady, whose daughter had been in my class. She was the cashier, so I begged the groceries, and she looked at me and she said, "Not your usual smile, Steve. What's oh. the matter?" I said, yeah. "Well, you know, she's a nice lady." And, she kind of got it out of me, and she said, uh, "Really? They wouldn't give you a raise?" I said, "No." <laughs> she said, "You know, my husband is was just saying at dinner last night. He needs someone to dig ditches and level solid floors and unload lumber trucks, and he's willing to pay two dollars an hour, and he can't find anybody." Oh. And I said, "Can I have his phone number?" <laughs> and that night I called him. And he said, come talk to me. So I drove down, and he hired me and said, had remembered me from playing football and thinking, well, I think you, you're dumb enough if, <laughs> if you flunked out of school and you're strong enough. So. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> These are not encouraging uh, words when you're yeah. a young 18-year-old. No kid. <laughs> so... Uh, Went back to the store the next morning and said, I need to give you, uh, and he said, uh, go give me a notice, and if they don't want it, um, come on back, and I'll be at such and such, you can go to work tomorrow. So I went back to the store, and the guy said, "Uh, what do you mean you're leaving me? Uh, Summer's coming, it's going to get busy. And I said, well, I'm I'm leaving you for more money, because you said I wasn't worth any more. And he said, see, this is why you're not worth any more. So I Okay. So he said, no, go, go, go. You're done. So I went to the, back to the first guy and stopped and changed my clothes on the way home, got into some more clothes and went to work for the guy, uh, unloading lumber trucks and leveling cellar floors and and towering foundations, anything to do with construction, digging ditches. Yeah. Uh, In fact, that's how I met John Downing. Oh, how funny. I was in a, cellar in Saco, leveling the floor, getting it ready for to pour the cement on it. Mm-hmm. And a fellow walked in the basement and said, uh, hi. And I said, hello. And he said, who are you? And I said, well, my name is Steve Adams, and I work for Downing Agency. And, um, 
And he said, uh, what do you do for them? And I said, well, I right, and I explained. I said, well, all this dirt gets leveled, and I have this stick that's the right height, and all these floor pieces, I walk around with the stick and make sure it's all the right height on all the dirt. And then we let it settle for a couple of days, and then they pour the cement. He said, oh, you sound like you know what you're doing. I said, I, I'm just learning. I've only been here a couple of weeks, but I'm, I'm getting there. And I'm thinking, this is the guy that owns the house, so I want to be careful and not yeah. mess up. And the guy says, well, who do you work for? And I said, I work for a man named John Downing. And so the guy says, well, what do you think of him? And I said, gee, I'm sorry. I've, I've, I've never met the man. I, oh, I get there early in the morning, and I leave. By the time I get home at night, he's gone. Yeah. No idea. And the guy stuck his hand out and said, Hi, I'm John Downing. It's time we met. Oh. Come with me. And I had tarred the outside of the foundation. Are you familiar with that process? No. When you have a new cement foundation, you seal the outside of it before you push the dirt back around it oh. with, with a waterproofing. Oh, okay. That's yeah. basically a tar-based waterproofing. Wow, I didn't know that. So, okay. I, you know, you get dabbed <laughs> all, all over. Oh, yeah. yeah. And a mud. Yeah. And <laughs> in those days, I would shower and shave at night. Mm -hmm. So I'd be all spiffed to go out and see Joni <laughs> or whomever. Yeah, and, yeah. And then the next day, just get up and go to work. Yeah. So I needed a shave, and I got tar and mud and... Got out of John's car with him. He brought me home. Oh. Introduced me to his wife and kids. Oh, my gosh. And his wife made me lunch, and we get introduced. Well, that was nice. It was very nice. <laughs> uh, so that's how I started wow. working for John Downing. Then the fall of... This is a funny story. Oh. The fall of 69 mm -hmm. was when the uh, draft lottery was reinstituted. Okay, yeah. You probably maybe read about it. I was it. just reading it, yeah. There used to be a place called Forefathers Inn down on Log Cabin Road. Okay. That was a local watering hole. <laughs> and the fellow who's now a local attorney was the bartender working his way through college wow. and where all the local guys went. And I had been blessed, I thought, with a fairly dark beard and uh, hair. Okay. Nobody knew or could figure out how old I was. Oh, fair enough. So I, down I went. <laughs> it's the night they're going to have, they're going to pick everybody's lottery yeah, number. Yeah, yeah, right. And whatever your lottery number is, that determines how soon you're going to get drafted. Yeah. So we all go to Forefathers, and we're all sitting around. We had a pizza, and we drank a few beers. And then they start pulling all the numbers, and they pull mine, and it's 67. Okay. And I'm thinking, crap, that <laughs> oh, no. can't be good. Yeah. That... Well, a couple of days later when I came to, <laughs> literally, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> oh, no. I thought, well, I better go to the draft board. Oh, okay. And yeah. the draft board then was down on Main Street, upstairs above what used to be Perfecto's. Okay, yeah. One of those offices. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> The lady who ran the draft board, it seems to me, Miss Weber, I don't remember. She'd been on my paper when I was a kid, oh. anyway. Yeah. Went in to see her, and I said, Hi, uh, I'm, you don't remember me. I used to be your paper boy. I'm Steve Adams, and I'm here about the draft lottery. Oh, yes, I remember you. How are you? And I, well, who knows whether she did or not. <laughs> so she said, Well, okay, let's see 
what your status is. Now, this is November now, the second week of November. Right, okay. I think I'm right. Um, she says, uh, what number did, when's your birthday? July 25th. She looks it up. She said, oh, dear. I wouldn't make any plans for New Year's Eve if I were you. Oh, my gosh. That was really sweet. <laughs> really? And I said, no, really? And she said, oh, yes. Oh, dear. Okay. So, sure enough, second week of December, I get this letter. Yeah. And it really does say greetings. Wow. And it says greetings. <laughs> you have, you are to report to, in my case, Camp Lejeune, okay. South Carolina, on or before such and such a day, or submit proof of having made other arrangements to serve oh. the United States of America. Okay. So you could either be drafted, yeah. or you could join somewhere. I see. So I'm thinking, let's see. I could be a Marine. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> or I could, I could join the Navy, but... Yeah, no, 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 no. I can Coast Guard be perfect. Go to the Coast Guard, and they said, "Well, we'd love to yeah, fill in this application." And of course, there is a little waiting list. And I said, well, "How little? Four years?" Oh my gosh! It was a four-year waiting list to join the Coast Guard. So wow. that wasn't going to work out, unless you had a particular occupation sure. or that they needed or an office or something like that but just for somebody coming in off the street wow so that wasn't going to work out so i went to the army recruiter and he said ah oh, no problem with but i'm thinking she's <laughs> army i don't know that's still a little close to the, yeah. but it's better than the marines yeah yeah so i'm thinking about it and there was used to be a doctor in town in those years called uh, a Dr. Cuneo. Okay. And he had a son, Kim, who I didn't know well because Kim and his, his, his brother had dated my sister, but you kind of knew him around town, but he and his brother went went to uh, Hebron and, oh, okay. and, you know, they went yeah. to prep school. Sure. So he called me one day and he said... Uh, Steve, I heard that you had a low track number. And it kept, we all kind of kept track of each other. He said, I heard that there's uh, a National Guard outfit just a, got back to Portsmouth from Vietnam. Oh. They have openings. Well, that's nice. I'll pick you up on my way down if you're interested. So I said, absolutely. So he picked me up. We went to Portsmouth. We both enlisted yep. in the National Guard. They told me they were going to make me uh, a clerk typist. Oh, wow. And Kim was going to be a, a, an aimer to do with computers. So, early computers. Yeah. You know, I've never seen him since. Oh, I've never I, seen I've, him. I've kept track of him, but yeah, I've never yeah. physically seen him oh. since. So, wow. I ended up uh, knowing that when I went down there, I was going to basic for 12 weeks. I was going to... Eight weeks clerk type of school. Wow. Then I was coming back to Kennybun. That's so funny. More adventures, but... Yeah, right, exactly. But we digress. <laughs> We're doing pretty good. I, I wanted to just go back, because you had mentioned it earlier, about you had also some classmates from 1968 that also... Or the class of 1968, excuse me, at high school. Went to yes. Vietnam. Yes. We had lost Tommy Bazemore. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he has a trophy case. Okay, yeah. Uh, Dennis ended up at the honor guard right. at the White House. Yep. Um, Mark Cook ended up in the Navy. A couple of fellows ended up in the Air Force. Um, then we had uh, several that, uh, that that ended up going to Vietnam. Um, Mariner Fleming. It was his, his news. His name has been in the paper recently because a, a service dog just got named for him, oh. and it was in the paper within the last month. Wow. Corporal uh, Mariner Fleming. He uh, got killed in Vietnam. Didn't even know it. Oh, gosh. Agent Orange. Oh. Lots of fellows uh, yeah. got killed by Agent Orange. Huh. Do you have any other big memories from 1968 that we probably didn't touch on? Beach Boys in concert. Oh, nice. Ah, <laughs> oh, that was a happening. <laughs> that was the first time I was allowed to go to a concert on my own (laughs) oh that was amazing thank you for listening to this episode of the brick brought to you by the museum's proud business partners questions comments and topic suggestions can be emailed to info at brickstoremuseum.com Please tune in to next month's show to dive into more Kennebunk history, art, and culture. And to learn more about what the museum does year-round, please visit our website at www.brickstoremuseum.org.